the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you, and good afternoon. Welcome. It is the 21st of May, and uh, my goodness, we're just heading into Memorial Day weekend. Normally, I'd ask you a very intimate, personal question at this juncture, like, where do you plan to go? But I kind of know what your plans are. guess we all have sort of the same plans, at least for the meanwhile, don't we? So uh, we're still going to try to make the best of it right and uh, remind you to uh, be sure to think of ways in which we can honor our veterans on this Memorial Day 2020. I read the other day that the normal display of flags at national cemeteries, military cemeteries across the country, will not be taking place because of COVID-19. Amazing how so much of daily life, big and little, gets interrupted. And suddenly we're forced to kind of rethink, recalculate, readjust, not only the way we do things, but perhaps too our sense of appreciation. Hard to think that Maybe a year ago, Easter, you were contemplating whether or not, gee, the weather is nice. Do I really want to get up and go to church or go knock around a few rounds of golf? And this Easter, we were wishing we could have been in church. And with this impact, of course, so broad and wide, we want to always, first and foremost, Be mindful of those that have suffered through this illness, continue to suffer through this illness, may be feeling the after effects and side effects of COVID-19 for years, decades to come. We just don't know. And of course, this illness has also left its indelible mark on the lives that have been lost. Over 96,000 Americans. When this was started, we were told, ah, it's nothing more than the flu or... Don't worry about it. Keep it in perspective. In the average flu cycle, we lose 35,000 Americans. Well, that's an average cycle over 12 months, and most of those that are taken are elderly and people that have compromised immune systems and people that failed to take flu vaccine. This particular illness has proven itself to be no respecter of persons. And we're looking now at three times the annual loss of what we normally suffer through the influenza season in just three months. It's tragic. And yet, with all of this and so much that has been changed and may be irrevocably changed, we need to still be mindful and keep perspective on the things that remain and what we can do to deal with our circumstances to try to forge ahead and really in some respects, modify the way we think, the way we engage in order to meet 
the set of circumstances. One aspect of life that has been changed, certainly for the time being, has been gathering at churches. And even once churches here in California begin to open, it won't be the same as it was when we last met in March. Let's talk a bit about that and the impact of COVID-19 on the church and the ways in which it may change the way we do things for the better. Joining me now is the Honorable Sam Rohrer, president of the American Pastors Network. He also writes and produces the Stand in the Gap radio program heard on stations across the country. And as always, Pastor Rohrer, great to have you on the show. Uh, Craig, it's my pleasure always to be with you as well. You know, when you think of it, we, we've been kind of spoiled here in the 20th and the 21st century um, church in the West in that we've had it pretty good. We've lived uh, generally in a stable environment. We've had laws and regulations and constitutions that uh, preserve and protect our God-given rights. We've had the opportunity to gather as we chose, worship God as we freely choose to do so, pray, gather, all of it. And yet the irony is, even as much as we're here longing for church the way it was before COVID-19, there are some ways in which what the church is facing today strikes me as not altogether different from the way it was for the early church. Maybe at least for the moment, and in the Western world to be sure, um, the notable difference being that this time we're having to make changes because of a pandemic, when the reality is for the early church, and certainly for many parts of the church even to this day, outside of the West, uh, they have to do church in a different way, not because of pandemics, but because of persecution. Well, Craig, I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry about that. I, I think, in fact, the parallels are uh, a lot of like. And, you know, in reality, these difficulties that we've had here now and are still experiencing are not even the same all the way across this country. Um, some governors, some mayors, uh, some local law, official, uh, law enforcement officials uh, have actually gone to the point, as uh, your listeners would know, of arresting pastors and fining those who even went to church in their cars uh, and gathered in their parking lot and still and, and met all of the recommended guidelines. So we are not only finding worship differently, different than normal, but we're finding extraordinary variances from state to state and locality to locality. That is really different in this nation, because um, we've, we've had the blessing of living under a constitutional republic, unlike the early church, unlike uh, the, our fellow believers in uh, China, or uh, Muslim countries in particular, um, where worship is not a guarantee. Matter of fact, uh, uh, persecution is a guarantee uh, because of the atheistic or Islamic leadership, as an example. In this country, we've had a constitution built on a Judeo-Christian worldview that uh, recognized uh, right off in the First Amendment the right uh, to assemble, the right to worship, and, and to gather and to speak. And so a, a very critical distinction we've had. So when we have uh, a, a forced change of worship because of a health issue, that's one thing, but it's not totally without precedent, because there were many churches back in 1918 and so forth in the Spanish flu era where churches, uh, Philadelphia and some other 
uh, places uh, chose not to worship for a period of weeks uh, while that flu was going around. But this one is different. This is now extended way beyond. Um, this one has been uh, erratically imposed, again, by different governors, by different mayors, and it's producing an entirely different response um, that's developing in this country. Another, that could be another issue we can talk about, but it's, it's forcing considerations, choices by pastors, uh, discussions with uh, um, attorneys and others about can this be done, should this be done, what should be the response. And I think it's, a, it's, quite, uh, it's quite a teachable moment in, in many respects for how we as um, Christians and how we as, uh, as American citizens living under a constitution uh, should balance before God what we do and balance what we can do and should do under a constitutional republic. And so I'm just going to stop at that point. But these are not days that we've ever had in this country before for those reasons, and they're producing some dilemmas, uh, I think some paralysis, perhaps, even on the part of people on all different positions of level uh, decision-making of what we can do and what we should do vis-a-vis uh, -vis God's moral law and vis-a-vis -vis our constitutional civil law. And to be sure, one of the dichotomies has been here, and, and you know, for the longest time, um, I think Christians that don't perhaps really follow what goes on in the rest of the world or aren't great students of history um, would often say, well, I just can't, just can't imagine a time that we wouldn't lose, we wouldn't maintain, rather, our rights here in America. I mean, after all, we've got a court system and we have the, um, the Constitution, we have the Supreme Court, we have authorities. They'll make sure that our rights are protected. And yet we wonder, how can our rights be abridged? Well, we're certainly seeing a lot of that right now. There's been a lawsuit to the north of us in Oregon saying that the governor there went entirely too far and actually um, overreached in her constitutional authority at the state level to uh, to order all these churches closed across the state. And right now, the Supreme Court of, of Oregon is having to, uh, to ponder that. Yesterday, we reported that the Department of Justice has sent a letter warning Governor Gavin Newsom to be very cautious in the way this reopening, reopening takes place here in California because there is this sort of staggered approach to it. And, of course, it's one thing to say that, well, we want to be careful, but be careful in the priority or the order in which you do things when you say, yep, we can get back to operation of schools and restaurants and offices and shopping malls and churches. Y'all got to wait. And um, there is something very constitutionally problematic with that. Well, there is, and that's, uh, that's part of the teachable moment aspect of, uh, of where we are. But see, from a, from a Christian perspective, we have God's moral law that we know ultimately tells us to submit to those things that are ordinance of, of, of government, except to the point to which they conflict with the orders of God. Now, that's a, that's a, that's, Peter made that clear in Scripture and other pastors. But we have an unusual circumstance here in the United States in that we live under a constitutional republic that limits the role of government, places the power of the, of the, of the uh, legal system, the Constitution, in the people themselves, and makes those who are in positions of authority uh, to carry out and operate within the limitations 
of the Constitution, which we understand to be built uh, consistently on biblical principles. So we have an opportunity and a duty here in our country to understand the biblical principles and the biblical principles that underpin the civil guarantees that are found in our Constitution, Declaration of Independence, and between the two of those, putting those together, drive the decision-making of those who are in positions of authority and citizens relative to what we do and circumstances. So when the Department of Justice, Attorney General Barr, comes out and warns the governors of the various states, which he did, about overstepping their constitutional authority, we can be thankful for that, because that would not happen in Pakistan or Saudi Arabia or China. But it can happen here. But I'm afraid that in many cases, uh, um, Craig, we have many people, and I'm, I'm thinking that many would even say they're church people, don't understand the biblical principles of how we engage and respond to a civil authority that operates outside God's will uh, or God's design, and particularly in our constitutional republic, where a governor, and most, most all of, much of what the governors are doing across the country, exceed their constitutional authority. And when that happens, then you hope that somebody steps in, like an attorney general, Barr, who warns them. But ultimately, we as citizens, pastors in the pulpit who may need to make decisions relative to worship and so forth, need to understand both sets of guidelines, and from that, then we can make determinations and choices that will be blessed of God. And ultimately, that's what we're telling pastors to do. Understand very carefully what the Bible says. Don't, don't be responding because you're just inconvenienced. Respond when you know there's a biblical principle. Identify it. Act upon it. And then you've got to know the Constitution as well. Otherwise, you are not going to be able to accurately say to the governor or someone else, you either are overstepping your authority and therefore um, uh, imposing a law that is inconsistent with what we, the people, have put together in the Constitution. These are, these are some very, very important principles, and I think this challenge uh, of COVID-19 are, are bringing, uh, Craig, a lot of people to the point where we're feeling rubbed, we're feeling more than inconvenienced, many can't work, uh, many can't worship, that kind of thing, and are forcing people... Uh, I'm encouraging them, go back to the first principles, understand that which gives us our, uh, our moral uh, authority, the Word of God, and understand what the Constitution said and our founders gave us to guide us, because these are the things and areas that are challenging us right now. We've not had, we've lived, uh, we've been able to experience great blessing without a lot of work. Now we're being pressured and it's a great, great time for people to understand both of them. And if we do that, and we do that properly and rightly, we will come out stronger. If we don't, then, then we obviously have uh, a lot of continued challenge ahead of us. Indeed so. And of course, one of the things, that, uh, Pastor Rohr, that I have encouraged pastors and listeners to this program uh, to keep in mind along the way, and that is simply this, that while we have to weigh these questions and challenges in relationship to constitutional rights, duties, protections, 
obligations, um, certainly the health and welfare of members of our congregations and the greater community, but also keep in mind the broader picture here that what we say, what we do, how we react is being watched. And I don't mean by the long eye of, of the law, being watched by the non-believer. It's interesting to note that if you look at some of the big pandemics that have happened down through history, for example, the Black Plague that, uh, that ravaged Europe, one of the opportunities that was taken is most notable that drew so many people into the kingdom was watching the way in which Christians responded with passion and compassion to those that were sick and dying around them, caring for those that were not even family members. And as non-believers watched this and said, you're willing to do that for total strangers? And I'm mindful of that passage of Scripture. When I was sick, when I was in jail, you visited me. When I was cold, you gave me warmth. When I was thirsty, you gave me that to drink. When I was sick in jail, you visited me. And whenever we did so to the least of these, we did so as unto very Christ himself. We're going to pause, come back to more of our conversation. Pastor Sam Rohrer is with us, president of the American Pastors Network, back with more right after an update on traffic. Here's the latest 522 from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. We're visiting today with Pastor Sam Rohrer, president of the American Pastors Network, about the opening up of America. And certainly one of the big aspects of American life that's been impacted is our ability to get together. And whether it's talking about having a party to celebrate an anniversary of a loved one or a birthday or simply going to church on Sunday, every aspect has been impacted. As churches begin to open, these changes that require social distancing and so forth will certainly very much change the feeling of church. And I'm wondering if maybe there's going to be a time if this disease hangs around, Pastor Rohr, that we need to rethink the big church model, maybe for a season, maybe the idea of the house church is going to forcibly come back in vogue again. What do you think? Well, you know what? That's uh, that's an interesting that's an interesting thought. Um, in in reality, many um, places across the country, uh, churches we know of, some have been actually meeting in their homes all um, for some period of time. Now, obviously, some are meeting by Zoom virtually, but we know that uh, virtual gatherings um, uh, were never the design of um, the biblical New Testament, uh, even. Uh, even the, the, the churches being the gathered, called out ones, um, r- really refers to physical gatherings. It's just not called out, but called out to a physical uh, location. It's very tough to sit around and and, and take the Lord's table virtually, right? Uh, it's very difficult to show compassion, to put your arm around the uh, to solace those who are hurting uh, virtually. Um, the, the, you know, the, the verse talks about giving a holy kiss. Obviously, that was a traditional thing at a certain time, but you you can't do that virtually either. 
as people, we're not made to remain apart uh, virtually for any extended period of time. Uh, families can't. Uh, teachers who can't touch their children physically, uh, there's something about the bonding that doesn't happen, certainly moms and babies. We know that there's something about the physical touch that is uh, incredibly important. And for a time, you, one can be separated. But I think, I think that people are sensing, uh, Craig, and part of, the, part of the angst of being stuck at home and all of these kinds of things that have happened is that there's a natural sense that's coming out that people say, I'm not, I'm not only going stir-crazy, but there's a natural desire to be with people. Like God made us that way. So does it mean, though, that we have to be in a church of 10,000? Uh, no, by, by no means. Could that be a house church? Well, absolutely it could. Now, more often than not, house churches are things that happen where you have um, active civil government persecution, where you have to do it for, uh, for fear of arrest or something of that type. Um, but there's nothing wrong with that, and that's really been a model uh, for a long time. Believers in, uh, in the old Soviet Union couldn't meet, and they would meet out in the woods, in the forest. So believers have always met where they needed to. The early Christians met in the catacombs. So it certainly is not a brick-and-mortar location that defines a church. And I think on the positive side, we should be learning that, and I think many have through this whole process, that in reality, relationships can deepen. Um, 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 help and assistance with each other still can occur. And frankly, many relationships I know of talking people across the country would say they have developed, they have deepened in this time. But there's no substitute for physically coming together. So if this plague, and I'm calling it a plague, uh, a worldwide plague, if this plague continues of a sort, that it forces government action, be it right or wrong, um, it may just mean that we look at worship uh, differently and in smaller groups than before. And, and if that were the case, would worship be any less? No, I don't think so. Would it be any less powerful? No, I don't think so either. It would be different. Uh, we're not at that point yet. There's a lot of things that have to work out, but just meeting in a smaller group as compared to a larger group is not by itself unbiblical or necessarily unhealthy. Some very valid points, and, you know, certainly a lot for the Church to have to uh, ponder and take account of and uh, consider not only in terms of how we manage Church under the new crisis, under what may be a prolonged plague, and the plague, I think, is a very accurate term, uh, and then, too, how we can continue to be the church in terms of rising and shining and bringing hope and encouragement to those around us. You know, there's the dynamic of the church that is we that are disciples of Christ gathering together to encourage and uh, exhort one another, rebuke when necessary. But then, of course, there's the broader job of the church to go out and to share the good news of Jesus Christ and to make disciples. And I think we need to be mindful of one as much as we do of the other. Pastor Sam Rohr, president of the American Pastors Network. We appreciate the time. Information available on the web at AmericanPastorsNetwork.net. That's AmericanPastorsNetwork.net. And I'll mention just before we 
move on to the next session. Um, I just got a email message, my goodness, four minutes ago, that um, Pacific Justice Institute has brought a lawsuit in court against Governor Newsom challenging the unconstitutional treatment of churches. And this specifically in uh, the U.S. District Court of um, Eastern District on behalf of um, a couple of churches in Calaveras County. More details to follow. 5.33 from KFAX. Here are some details now on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. We're going to shift gears a bit. We've talked a lot about the impact of the current pandemic on the church and life and society. But certainly the the secondary impact beyond the tragic loss of life has been what's happening financially. And um, it may be a long time before we fully understand the breadth and depth of this. As people have gone on unemployment, as some businesses have shuttered, others have literally shut down. Um, It's brought again to the surface the questions of financial life in America, and most importantly, perhaps the, the kind of questionable legacy that we are laying to leave behind, not only as this particular group of Americans and what it means for future generations, but also in terms of our own personal legacy as it relates to what we leave our children and grandchildren. We're going to leave them a financial legacy that can help give them a leg up and an opportunity that we didn't have as kids, or are we going to attempt to burden them? Certainly, if you look at the growing federal deficit, you get the growing sense that we're going to leave them a huge burden. And if any of the recent reporting in some of these surveys is accurate, and I have every reason to believe that it is, we're demonstrating we're in a pretty big heap of trouble. Um, Why is it that within one paycheck cycle, Americans are panicked and talking about wanting to have rent holidays? Go banking rates over the last um, seven, eight years has conducted an annual survey And the most recent survey for 2019 found that fully 69% of Americans had less than $1,000 in savings. 69% of Americans. Wow, there's some legacy. David McIlvaney joins us, CEO of McIlvaney Wealth Management, well-respected thought leader he is he on the global economy. You've seen him as a guest, perhaps, on programs including that of CNBC, Fox News, Bloomberg, and others. And David, great to have you with us. Uh, Craig, great to be with you. Thanks for the invite. Wow, you look at some of these numbers. Between what we've gotten ourselves in trouble with collectively as a nation insofar as the the federal debt, and then the kind of debt load that the average American is dealing with today, it it seems as if the majority of Americans never took heed to something that my father always said, which was, young man, don't live beyond your means. 
but live beyond our means, boy, have we. It really is interesting, isn't it, Craig, how we're looking at those basic nuggets of wisdom that can and should be passed from one generation to the next. And I don't know if it's we think this time it's different. Um, and somehow at the private level or at the corporate level or at the governmental level, we can create as much debt as we want to. Um, but we do know that the borrower becomes servant to the lender, and there is a real lack of freedom in that approach to the good life, quote-unquote. And um, you're right. Basic wisdom from the past is something we should heed and perhaps uh, talk about a little bit more around the dinner table. And certainly so, because, you know, there, there's always the old adage of the American dream being that of wanting to leave a, a better future, a better life for our children. And parents that would like to regale kids with stories about how tough they had it as a child growing up and the number of sacrifices that their parents went through in order to put the basic of food on the table or to provide an education, things of this sort. So there's always, I think, historically been that sense of wanting to leave the next generation in better shape than the one before. But somehow, somewhere, we've gotten off the track. What's happened here? Yeah, I think it's very easy for us to measure our success in terms of dollars and cents, square feet and acres. And being in the financial business, we know that people enjoy getting their monthly statement and seeing when they've made gains. It's more difficult to measure the success with things that matter even more in the context of family life. And when you look at a full balance sheet, a full list of assets that we should be managing, both the tangible assets that we just talked about, uh, which may be real land and property, stocks, bonds, gold and silver, what have you. There's also the intangible assets that need attention and management. And because we don't get a monthly statement, it's more difficult to say, here's how we're growing, whether it's emotionally growing up, spiritually growing up, intellectually maturing. And, and these are assets that I think factor in to a, a really robust sense of what legacy is and it also helps redefine for a family that may not have a million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars or two nickels to rub together the relevance of every decision that they make promoting the, the, the health and maturity in those areas spiritual growth and development emotional growth and development intellectual growth and development a, a good legacy is within reach of everyone uh, what I've tried to argue is is that the difference between the accidental uh, which you may have regrets over, and, and, and the legacy which you're most proud of is that one key element of intentionality. What is it you're trying to create? And, and maybe therein lies one of the biggest shortcomings here, David, and that is the, an utter lack of intentionality, meaning that we kind of uh, go about our day-to-day -day existence and attempting to uh, survive and sort of eke out a, a life and, and uh, advance and move forward without any real game plan, so to speak, in mind. There's not a, a sense of purpose with which we do what we do. It's sort of just living one day to the next. And, and certainly there are times and seasons for all of us when, because of a variety of circumstances, both in and out of our control, we may have no other choice than to simply survive for another day. But I think the broader thing that you're talking about is the kind of legacy that we leave behind that goes beyond the financial well-being of our families, but also the well-being from the the sense of self-worth and self-value and the kind of lessons that have been taught and the values that have been handed down that sort of begins to build the totality, the sum of what this legacy hopefully will become. 
Well, that's right. And I think there's a difference. If you look at today's road trip planner versus yesterday's road trip planner, today's road trip planner can just hop in the car and Google Maps will chart any course you want. But it wasn't that many years ago that you had to pull out a map. You had to know where you were going. You might even have to think about where you're going to stop for gas. Nothing was done automatically for you. And I think our family culture maps need to be similarly done in the old school fashion where you lay it out and you say, what are the books and conversation points that we want to have relating to those books? What is the poetry and literature that will define the conversations that we have around the dinner table? What activities do we want to share that bind our hearts together? Whether that's going on hikes or fixing meals together or theater or dance or tennis, what have you. What are the values and the character that we're going to intentionally demonstrate lead by example, and encourage through life's many opportunities. If you look at things like a map, the old-fashioned map, and say, where are we going? You might, in fact, ask another question, which is, what are the resources we need to get that done? That, to me, is is really the heart of, of the intentional legacy, because it brings in legacy as the sum of values and experiences and culture that you're creating. So, really, when you think about family legacy, you're talking about a cultural project. project. You're talking about the creation and exploration of unique identities that can have a fabulous impact on the world. And, and, And again, you can leave that to chance or you can be a curator. You can be a curator of the instances and experiences that together brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers experience and use as a springboard uh, for significant impact in the culture around us. So then it becomes very intentional living that is worked toward accomplishing a goal, achieving a purpose, and then being able to hand down to future generations all the tools, the skills necessary to create and build that legacy to then gift enough life to become a legacy that gets passed on generation to generation. Because sometimes folks may come from a family that had some sense of legacy to it, and then something short-circuited that, maybe a person or an event, but it got short-circuited, and then as a result, everything kind of gets sketchy from there moving forward. We're talking today with David McIlvaney. David is the CEO of McIlvaney Wealth Management. He's a well-respected thought leader in the arena of economics and author of The Intentional Legacy, now published by Brown Thompson and available through the usual suspects, including Amazon.com and no doubt David's website at davidmcilvaney.com. We're talking a bit about this notion of um, the kind of legacy that we create and leave behind, and is it all happenstance and and uh, haphazard, or can it be an intentional one, economic and otherwise? We'll get to more of the dynamic of our conversation as our visit with David McElvaney continues here on Lifeline. Right now, we're going to get a look at traffic for you at 548. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back to our conversation today. The CEO of McIlvaney Wealth Management, David McIlvaney, with us today. A look at his new book, The Intentional Legacy, just newly released by Brown Thompson Publishing. You can get it through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, as well as through David's website, DavidMcIlvaney.com. David, I mentioned before the break, sometimes this sense of, of legacy planning, legacy leading, legacy leaving 
gets short-circuited, and we'll hear stories for a while about how the great-grandpa did this, that, and the other thing, and then suddenly somebody kind of gets left out of the pack, things fall apart. How can we make sure that there's a sense of, of continuity as we go about creating and leaving a legacy that's not only a financial one, but, but one of values and, and of things that we hold dear? Yeah, Craig, in wealth management circles, we talk about the problem of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves, where one generation rolls up their sleeves and gets the job done, may create a small fortune, and by the third generation, uh, that wealth is dissipated. And I think we see both in a, in a spiritual sense as well, when the hard-fought battles are, are not talked about uh, and repeated and taught and demonstrated and, and lived out uh, in a different version and a different iteration in the second and third generations, there is something of, a, of an amnesia event. We forget. We don't really understand. We don't appreciate. And so whether it is a physical, tangible wealth or a spiritual legacy, they can be lost through lack of intentional communication, uh, exploration. I mean, obviously there's, there's free will involved here, and, and in any generation, anyone can do anything they want. Um, but I think one of the things that's really compelling when you think about both a spiritual legacy, uh, particularly a spiritual legacy, is, is that kids are watching. Grandkids are watching. The qualitative aspects of your life absolutely matter. So what you are putting on display and what you're living out is as important, if not more important, than what you say. You may adhere to just the right creed and and code of belief, but if your life is not compelling, um, where is the buy-in? Why would the next generation want to duplicate what they see if, in fact, it's not life-giving? And in Scripture, we have such a clear example of what love is, of what forgiveness looks like. And so for us to to demonstrate that, that is, I think, what creates buy-in for the next generation, a life-giving experience. And, you know, as we think about this, it it is that legacy building, that legacy leaving, that that hopefully ultimately allows future generations to build off of that knowledge base, that wisdom, and mistakes of the past. One of the things, you know, the the old adage, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it, that we sometimes um, fail to hold dear the lessons that we have learned, or if we hold them dear, we fail to pass them on. And so as a result, there you are, future generations getting into trouble, be it mismanagement of finances or whatever the case might be, uh, that can be very problematic. Craig, like you said, and George Orwell said something similar, the most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history. And I think one of the ways that you can counteract that, a practical route to uh, a positive outcome with your legacy planning, is to make sure that you have adequate time together as a family. Where and when do you have the opportunity to share the stories and to demonstrate God's grace to us and in the context of daily life? That's where it happens. So around the dinner table, around the breakfast table. I I would just say this, create routines that allow for those opportunities. It could be date night once a week with your wife. Tell me there's not a woman in the world who doesn't want a routine moment in the week to to feel celebrated and special. Um, Tell me that there's not a child in the world who doesn't appreciate five minutes here, five minutes there on a routine basis. What about family night once a week, or you know, we do guys night on Thursday nights, so guess what we're going to be doing the rest of the evening? Uh, we'll be playing and talking, and the guys get to, to, to separate out and, 
and and just enjoy games and conversation that is is private to us and personal and so so important for our opportunity to connect those routines every week are critical. I'm going to tell you one story real quick, and it's the spoonful of honey. Every morning I wake up with my daughter. She's nine years old, and we go downstairs, and we sit at, in the kitchen, and I, I get a spoonful of honey for her and for me, and we'd spend five minutes talking about how she slept and what dreams she had. And I, I went on a trip not long ago, and she said, Dad, I'm, I'm not having honey until you return. And I, I didn't realize it, but she had grasped more about the concept of solidarity just through the spoonful of honey than if I had ever tried to define and use that term in a sentence. She got to experience it, and she showed me she loved me. She enjoyed our time together, and it meant something to her. It was the concrete holding our relationship together, and she was not going to have honey until I returned. The routines of life, Craig, these are the things that I think um, if we're careful about what we say no to and what we say yes to, these are the things that can create sentimentality and nostalgia, which set family legacy on a completely different trajectory. I know a family that did this. We went to a castle in Germany not long ago. The Els family is in their 34th generation. The castle has been owned by the family all that time. I get to spend some time with a historian who tracks the family's history, and he said these three things held them together and still holds them together to this day. Diplomacy, civility, that is kindness, and sentimentality. All of these, all of these, Mr. Roberts, these are the intangibles. These are the intangibles which make for enduring legacy. Does it take money? Now, in fact, I've seen more instances where lots of money creates division and a world of, of Darwinian tooth and claw, where the next generation it goes into a free-for-all for who gets what. And, and, it's, and it's, <laughs> it's not ideal. But I think a greater focus on cultivation of the intangibles, this is what sets legacy in the right direction. Some solid thoughts about Intentional Legacy, the book by the same title, available through Amazon.com, also through David's website at davidmcilvaney.com. Again, it's called The Intentional Legacy, Brown Thompson Publishing, and our thanks to its author, our guest on this segment of Lifeline, David McIlvaney. Six o'clock exactly from KFAX San Francisco. Reminder, coming up tomorrow night at five o'clock here on the program, uh, we're going to be privileged to have a, a return visit, the the monthly fourth Friday of the month um, visit by Pastor Phil Howard. He'll be taking your Bible questions tomorrow night right here on Lifeline. Right now, though, let's get some questions answered related to traffic. <laughs> 